Chapter 7 of Dope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend. Dope by Sax Romer. Chapter 7. Further Evidence. The examination of Quentin Gray was three times interrupted by telephone messages from Vine Street, and to the unsatisfactory character of these, the growing irascibility of Chief Inspector Carey bore testimony. Then the divisional surgeon arrived, and Burton incurred the wrath of the chief inspector by deserting his post to show the doctor upstairs. "'If inspired idiocy can help the law,' shouted Carey, "'the man who did this job is as good as dead.' He turned his fierce gaze to Gray's direction. "'Thank you, sir. I need trouble you no further.' "'Do you wish me to remain?' "'No. Inspector Whiteleaf, see these two gentlemen pass the sergeant on duty.' "'But damn it all!' cried Gray, his pent-up emotions at last demanding an outlet. "'I won't submit to your infernal dragooning. "'Do you realize that while you're standing here doing nothing, absolutely nothing, "'an unhappy woman is, I realize,' snapped Carrie, showing his teeth in canine fashion, "'that if you're not outside in ten seconds, there's going to be a cloud of dust on the stairs.' White with passion, Gray was on the point of uttering other angry and provocative words when Seaton took his arm in a firm grip. Gray, he said sharply, you leave with me now or I leave alone. The two walked from the room, followed by Whiteleaf. As they disappeared, read all the times mentioned in the last witness's evidence, directed Carey, undisturbed by the recontra. Sergeant Combs smiled rather uneasily, consulting his notebook. At about half past six, I drove to Bond Street, he began. I said the times, rapped Carey. I know to what they refer. Just give me the times as mentioned. Oh, murmured Combs. Yes. About half past six, he ran his finger down the page, a quarter to seven. Seven o'clock. Twenty-five minutes past seven. Eight o'clock. Stop, said Carey. That's enough. He fixed a baleful glance upon Gunn, who from a point of the room discreetly distant from the terrible red man was watching with watery eyes. Who's the smart in all the overcoats, he demanded. My name is James Gunn, replied the greatly insulted man in a husky voice. Who are you? What are you? What are you doing here? I'm employed by Spinker's agency and... Oh! shouted Carey, moving his shoulders. He approached the speaker and glared menacingly into his purple face. Ho, ho! So you're one of the queer birds out of that roost, are you? Spinker's agency. Ah, yes. He fixed his gaze now upon the pale features of Bristley. I've seen you before, haven't I? Yes, Chief Inspector, said Bristley, licking his lips. Hayward's Heath. We have been retained by... You have been retained, shouted Carey. You have! He twisted round upon his heel, facing Montmervin, angry words trembling on his tongue. But at sight of the broken man who sat there alone, haggard, a subtle change of expression crept into his fierce eyes, and when he spoke again the high-pitched voice was almost gentle. You have employed these men, sir, to watch... He paused, glancing towards Whiteleaf, who had just entered again, and then in the direction of the inner room where the divisional surgeon was at work. To watch my wife, Inspector. Thank you. But all the world will know tomorrow. I might as well get used to it. Mont Irvin's pallor grew positively alarming. He swayed suddenly and extended his hands in a significant groping fashion. Carey sprang forward and supported him. All right, Inspector, all right, muttered Irvin. Thank you. It has been a great shock. At first I feared. You thought your wife had been attacked, I understand. Well, it's not so bad as that, sir. I'm going to walk downstairs to the car with you. But there is so much you will want to know. It can keep until tomorrow. 
I've enough work in this peep show here to have me busy all night. Come along, lean on my arm. Mont Irvin rose unsteadily. He knew that there was cardiac trouble in his family, but he had never realized before the meaning of his heritage. He felt physically ill. Inspector, his voice was a mere whisper, have you any theory to explain Mrs. Irvin's disappearance? Don't worry, sir. Without exactly having a theory, I think I may say that, in my opinion, she will turn up presently. God bless you, murmured Irvin, as Carrie assisted him out onto the landing. Inspector Whiteleaf held back the sliding door, the mechanism of which had been broken so that the door now automatically remained half-closed. Funny, isn't it, said Gunn, as the two disappeared and Inspector Whiteleaf re-entered, that a man should be so upset about the disappearance of a woman he was going to divorce. Damn funny, said Whiteleaf, whose temper was badly frayed by contact with Carrie. I should have a good laugh if I were you. He crossed the room, going into where the surgeon was examining the victim of this mysterious crime. Gunn stared after him dismally. A person doesn't get much sympathy from the police, Bristley, he declared. That one's almost as bad as him, jerking his thumb in the direction of the landing. Bristley smiled in a somewhat sickly manner. Red Carey is a holy terror, he agreed, sotto voce, glancing aside to where Combs was checking his notes. Look out, here he comes. Now, cried Carey, swinging into the room, what's the game? Plotting to defeat the ends of justice? He stood with hands thrust in reefer pockets, feet wide apart, glancing fiercely from Bristley to Gunn and from Gunn back again to Bristley. Neither of the representatives of Spinsker's agency ventured any remark, and— "'How long have you been watching Mrs. Mont Irvin?' demanded Carey. "'Nearly a fortnight,' replied Bristley. "'Got your evidence in writing?' "'Yes.' "'Up to tonight?' "'Yes.' "'Dictate to Sergeant Combs.' He turned on his heel and crossed to the divan upon which his oilskin overall was lying. Rapidly he removed his reefer and his waistcoat, folded them, and placed them neatly beside his overall. He retained his bowler at its jaunty angle. A cut of presumably flavorless chewing gum he deposited in a brass bowl, and from a little packet which he had taken out of his jacket pocket he drew a fresh piece, redolent of mint. This he put into his mouth, and returned the packet to its resting place. A slim, trim figure, he stood looking round him reflectively. Now, he muttered, what about it? End of chapter 7